here we are. Week five of fault lines. Everybody say fault lines with me. One, two, three. Fault lines. Can we do it stronger? One, two, three. Sounding better. You're sounding better. One more time. One, two, three. There you go. See, that's VBS level right there. So, so encourage you, if you're going to take notes, get your, get your notes out. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8 for a little bit. Fault lines is all about this idea that there's things in life, tension, stressors, pressure, um, that we could build life on, we could build a marriage on, we could build a family on, and uh, ignore all the tremors and all the shaking, all the momentary times when something seems to be pushing and then one day, just a catastrophic thing happens. And, and so um, we've been tackling these. And uh, next, next Sunday, everybody say next Sunday. Next Sunday we'll be over at the park outside at the Greenwood Amphitheater. If you're taking notes, maybe you're not, you probably want to put this in your phone because it will help you at 100 Serena Way. And uh, it's over there in the park, over in town. And we'll have worship. We're going to worship like... Nobody's watching. There may be some people watching. You know that saying, we're going to dance like nobody's watching. Well, there may be some people watching, but we're going to worship like there's nobody watching but him. Amen. Because it's all for him. And so we're going to be outside, and we'll be in week six of this uh, message series, Fault Lines. And then afterwards, going to have food, burgers, and dogs, and all that, and uh, some games. And it'll be fun. Here, let me tell you something. This is important couple things you need to bring. It's all, for, it's all going to be just done for you, except you need to bring a chair. If you don't bring a chair, you'll be the last man standing, right? <laughs> bring a chair because there's no chairs out there. You can sit on the ground. That's okay. But bring a chair and, um, and then also bring somebody with you. Everybody say bring somebody. Yeah, bring, bring somebody with you. There's a dad you know, a friend you have. Your dad, maybe if he's around, or a granddad, or maybe your dad, and you want your kids to come and join. It's going to be a lot of, uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be a good time. We were over last year. It's going to be good. But also, uh, we believe God's going to do some big things. Amen? Amen. So so we've been in this series, and next week is Father's Day. Been in this series. and we Last week, we talked about Galatians. If you weren't here and want to go back and listen, it's Elevation Indie, wherever you listen to podcasts or on YouTube. Uh, you can watch, but it's it's about the um, uh, the idea of you're in the right family. Look at somebody and say you're in the right family. Uh, you're in the right family. The fault line of of being in the right family, and then and then the week before we talked about just the the stage stressor with Naomi and the book of Ruth, and and um, we sometimes forget that the greatest stage we're on is the, in front of the people that we love the most, and then the week before the perfection press pressure. No families are perfect, right? All families are flawed families and embracing that uh, we're not going to push after thinking we're going to get perfection because that's a, that's a defeated place, right? Trying to think that your family is going to be perfect. And then first week we started out with that culture of lies, the truth tension and how that, that in our world there's a whole lot of lies, but we've got to stick with what God says because that's going to be the greatest hope for our marriages, for our families, and for relationships. And so today, today we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're talking about the frustration fault line. Frustration fault line. By the way, it's good to have Robert and 
Nancy Verbeek back with us from Switzerland. You glad they're here? Yeah, we're glad they're back. Anybody ever been frustrated? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. We get frustrated sometimes, don't we? And by, by the way, it's okay to be frustrated sometimes. You shouldn't be that way all the time. That'd be bad. But sometimes it's okay to be frustrated. The Bible speaks very clearly about uh, anger and how that works, that, that you can be angry, but you don't sin in your anger, and that you don't, anger has a, has a shelf life, that, that don't let the sun set on your anger is the word that God gives to us. And so, so it's, we, we can get angry. In fact, in fact, when I look at Jesus, if I'm going to be Christ-like, well, that time when he stepped in there and he flipped the tables, I mean, I don't think he was smiling that day. Are you with me? Right? I, don't, I, I mean, in fact, on, on your wall at home, if you've got a picture of Jesus, you probably got the one with the lamb on his, around his neck holding it, or you got him out in the, on the mountainside with the sheep. Although, I don't know that he was ever on the mountainside with actual sheep. Are you hearing me? I know what it's in reference to, but I'm just saying. And, and I, I think sometimes we have some, you know, the praying hands, the Gethsemane picture of Jesus, and those are all beautiful expressions trying to, to portray what we see in these passages. And hardly anybody that I've ever been over your house has the picture where Jesus is in the temple, and he's just, you know, I just kind of picture him like, boom, over good, you know, and then in one passage, because he did it multiple times, he's, he's got a cord, and he's like, Snapping that thing, it looks like to me. And I want to tell you, Jesus looks a little frustrated there. Are you with me? And if Jesus can be frustrated, well, you can too. In fact, the thing that drives frustration and anger sometimes in your life is the thing that will push you to pray. There's a whole lot of prayers that have been prayed because somebody got a little angry about something. Sometimes I see things in our world, injustice and something wrong, and, and it angers me a little bit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And then you feel like, well, I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to call on the Lord about that. The greatest thing you can do is go to him because even though you can't do necessarily anything that might make a difference right then, he can. Amen? And so frustration. Now, sometimes we get frustrated ourselves. I've done that before. You ever make a mistake or you do something like, you know, um, and, you, and you knew, like you had a gut feeling or the Holy Spirit was, but then you did a little different. And then you get frustrated that you didn't do what you first thought. Anybody ever done that? By the way, many times your gut reaction is right. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you only have to do that a million times before you figure out that's probably right. Right? The Holy Spirit is always right, by the way. Uh, but we get frustrated. It's, it's that... It's been a while, but I've had my share of being pulled over with the red lights or other blue, light, blue lights now. It's been a long time. But I get frustrated myself because I should have been paying attention to the speed, the speed limit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm thinking about 10,000 other things driving, and all of a sudden, there they are. I like to think officer-friendly coming to say hello, you know, doing their job. And we get frustrated ourselves, but then... Here's the frustration that I think happens many times in our life is we get frustrated at others. In fact, we get frustrated at people that we care about. And we get frustrated because maybe they're not, we, 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 we know what should happen, and yet they're doing something different. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, don't, don't nudge somebody or anything next to you and make them feel like that I'm talking about them. But I'm just saying, you know, it's like that little game. I, my granddaughter sometimes will play it. It's in the coloring books, connect the dots. Anybody ever do that? 
Like you got all the dots there, and then you, you, you go from one dot to the next. I'm, I'm going to explain it to you. Just make sure we all understand what I'm talking about. And then when you get to the last dot, it makes a picture. And then I'll be with one of them. Now, just so you know, I've been doing Connect the Dots probably since the late 60s. And I could just throw that down on them when we sit down to do the connect. They want, they, want, they want me to do it with them, but then they want to do it. And I don't ever say, listen, I've been doing connect the dots for decades. This is like your first one. Let me help you. But I'll try to steer them a little bit. They'll be like on dot number 11. And I'll say, I don't think that's where you need to start at. I think you need to start like this one over here. One, no, I would like this one, you know. And, and they, they're doing something, and then, you know, they'll go from 17 all the way across to 33. And I'm like, that's not the order that it goes in. And I know how to do it, and I know how to play it, and I know how to make it happen. And it can be a beautiful connect-the-dot, weird-shaped picture when it's done. But they feel like that they know, and they don't take my advice necessarily. Now, I'm just going to tell you. There's a whole lot of people that are struggling connecting the dots, and you try to help them, and in your trying, they decide to go an entirely different direction. And oh, what frustration. Anybody with me? And so I want to pick it up today. I talked a little bit about Samuel on first Wednesday, and they're going to have that little just brief 15-minute or less um, talk that I did on first Wednesday out, if it's not already out on social media, that you can, it's out there, so you can grab it and, and maybe connect up to where we're at today, although you don't have to. But I want to pick it up in First Samuel chapter 8, and it says this in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, behold, some of your rabbis say, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." Now, I could spend a whole lot of time here. It's a different message for a different time. But, but certainly the people of Israel, they are making a decision for a king. And Samuel gets seemingly a little frustrated about it. And God says, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. The plan of the judges was, was my desire, and they're asking for something different. They're asking for a king, and they're asking for a king because they looked at the world, and they see how the world does it, and they want to do it like the world. And that's the danger in marriage and in families and relationships, that we'll look at the world and think that, well, that's the way that we should go. And in this frustration fault line, I think one of the the first places that we have to just get to is the parenting prototype that all of us has. Now, here's what we have for parenting. It's God's way in this book. This will not fail you. Anybody testify to that? Say yes. 
right? His word won't fail you. If you spend time in his word and you allow your parenting to come from there, I'm telling you, you can't go wrong. And I want to tell you that parenting is something that we are learning and that we have received. All of us in here have received some kind of prototype for parenting, many times different than what God's word provides. And, you know, and you can go, you can go online right now and find some blogs. You can find a book that's written by somebody that's got some young children and then give you five, five keys, five principles on how to raise children. And, and I'm always like, okay, well, let's wait. Let's wait till they become teenagers. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, I know you're doing good with a five-year-old, but let me see you do something with a 15-year-old. Because a five-year-old may say yes and do whatever you want, but the 15-year-old may have another idea about how they want to do. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm thinking, like, wait a, wait a few years because you may have some good insights, but, but test them a little more and, you know, put, prove them a little more before you put them out there because there is a prototype in God's Word that will never fail us. And what I find is in life, if I don't have a plan when it comes to parenting, then I don't have a plan when it comes to parenting. And my default will be to do what I know. Now, where do we get what we know? We watched our parents and you may have god, godly parents, parents that did so many things right. But even at the best, every parent is flawed. And there's some things that a, that a parent that's raised children would tell you, I didn't get it all right. Any parents know what I'm talking about? Like, I wish I would have done that different. And sometimes we don't voice those things, let the whole world hear it. But in our heads, we're thinking, yeah, I wish I would have did more of this. Or I wish I would have been better at that. But we many times have run or defaulted to what we know. And here you have Samuel. And Samuel, he's just a, he's a great man of God. I, I think he's one of the key components of, of Israel's history because Israel has all these judges. And if you read the book of Judges, you're like, oh, my. Like they, they, they say it's some of the darkest days in Israel's history when you read about the judges and, and how they had to judge and the things that had to happen. And then you have the the season and time of the kings, King Saul and King David and, and Solomon and Rehoboam and, and the kings that, that we read throughout the Old Testament in, in uh, First and Second Kings and in First and Second Chronicles, we see these kings that, that ruled and reigned and different than the judges, but there's one man who steps in between both of those. I mean, Samuel is a picture of Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. But he steps in between the age of the judges and the age of kings, and he's the transition. He's, some say he's the last of the judges. Scholars will say Samuel marks the end of the age of the judges because Samuel is a judge, and yet he anoints the kings. Greatest king in the history of of Israel, King David, he anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And, and Samuel is that connector, that transition, but then he's also a prophet. And he's a prophet in such a way that none of the words that he ever speaks falls to the ground. When Samuel speaks, it's with precision accuracy. He doesn't get it wrong. And I want to tell you, you want a man of God that won't get it wrong. Are you with me? Like, like if somebody's speaking into your life, you want somebody that will hear from God and, and, and be in alignment with God's word and speak truth. 
Not somebody out there with like, okay, I got a little feel-good thing I want to share with you. And it's going, you know, you, you do these two things this week, and it's going to be real nice for you. And, you know, and, or, 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 you know, they got a book for you that's all about self-help but doesn't really get to the issues that we have in life and speak to, to our, our, our spirit man inside. And so Samuel's that guy that speaks with a prophetic unction even as a child. Samuel would hear God and speak what God said. It spoke truth to power in a day when that wasn't even a saying. And spoke by prophetic unction, moved in his life by prophetic unction. So he's, he's a judge, he's a prophet, and then Samuel also is a priest. Right? He, he's able to go um, and, and, and uh, steward and, and steer the people. He's used by God in a priestly role. And there's not very many people that will share those kind of roles all together. And so I see Samuel, and there's an, a certain admiration for him. When you read about him, it's, it's certainly we admire him as a man of God, as a judge, as a prophet, as a priest, the things that he did. And yet then I read about his sons. His sons didn't follow his ways, and he wanted that for them. He anointed them to be judges. He, he appointed them to, to, to a position similar to his. And because, back to what I said earlier, there is a desire when we love people to want to move them in the right direction. Are you with me? Right? We, we want to motivate them in the right direction, not manipulate them. God's design is never about manipulating people because if we could manipulate people, we just manipulate people, all people in the world to serve Jesus, right? By the way, that's been tried. We, we'd, we'd have crusades and we'd get, we'd get rulers and, and then we'd, we'd tell these people, okay, bow your knee and get baptized and whether you want to or not. No, that's not the way God does it, right? He motivates us through love to come. And so, so the people that we love, we're trying to motivate them. We, we would like to connect the dots for them, We'd like to put all their ducks in a row for them because they're all over the place. But that's not God's plan. And you see this with Samuel's sons. They, they are, uh, as it says here in the Scripture, they, they've turned aside, didn't walk in his ways for dishonest gain, took bribes, prevented justice. And when I read about those two and in studying this and thinking about how Samuel is as a parent, I thought about, I wonder where he learned his parenting skills. Because I could say Hannah, his mother, and Elkanah, his father, would have been the people, but they took him to the temple. And the place that he would have watched parenting happen was with a guy named Eli. In fact, it says this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord in verse 12. Verse 17 says, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Right? The offering of the Lord should have been, should have been looked at with, with joy and opportunity, and they caused people to not want. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 22 goes on to say, Now Eli, their father, Phinehas and Hophni, was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Kind of get the picture? People are coming to church, and there's women there, and, and, and they are... Uh, um, entering into sexual relations with those women. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with, from all the people. 
No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. And if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. I want to tell you, that's a bad day. It's a bad day. And the child Samuel, look at the contrast here. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. That's, that's a passage, that verse right there, uh, you can find it used on Jesus as well, right, that he grew. Uh, I, I just would say this, the contrast is, is that Samuel is there and he's growing and he's becoming a man of God, all the while Eli in his parenting role, his sons have made decisions to not follow his way. In fact, to go a different way. And I would say this, that for every parent here today, you got a, adult children, don't feel guilty about your parenting. Know this, that adults make their own decisions. How many know that? So guilt and condemnation, shame isn't the work of the Holy Spirit. The enemy maybe would like you to feel that way. And I think for Samuel, he couldn't make the decisions for his sons. But as a parent, I wonder, well, what does it say about Samuel being a parent? And I think that Samuel in some ways may have defaulted to what he watched Eli do because it's easy for us to default to some of the wrong things that we've seen in our life when it comes to parenting. Instead of going to God's word, we, like the people of Israel, want to look outside. The world doesn't know how to do parenting, I'm just going to tell you. You listen to your friends. You You find the YouTube video, you go buy the Dr. Spock book or whatever, and you try to figure out parenting. And I'll tell you, it's always going to fall short if you don't do it God's way. And so I'm going to give you some real quick, I'm going to give you some stuff you can jot down. I'm especially speaking to young parents, but to everyone in here, this will help us, that godly families begin with godly marriages. And if we don't, if we don't pursue a godly marriage, I want to tell you, we we will find ourselves in jeopardy in the way that we're leading our family simply because we didn't create this. I I continue to say this because I think it's important. And I will say this, that if you're here and you've suffered divorce or you've lost a spouse, please know that, um, as I've talked to so many people, I identify with your pain. I've had people tell me that when you go through divorce, they'd never wish it on anybody because it's so painful and it's so hard. People feel like they've been abandoned and betrayed, and, and uh, we, we believe for fresh beginning for you. Anybody agree with that? Say yes. Uh, but I also want us to know if you're married, well, it's on you to have a godly marriage because it wasn't our idea. We, we didn't come up with the idea. Let's put, two, let's put a man and woman together, and, and then they'll have some kids, and we'll call it a family. We didn't, say, we didn't come up with the idea to put a man and woman together. That was God's idea. When he created all the good things of creation, in fact, sometimes one of my favorite parts of the Bible to read is to pick up Genesis and just read those first, you know, two and three chapters there because it just, God created all this beautiful stuff. And he kind of he did it with, with, you know, it's almost like peanut butter and jelly, right? He did heaven and earth, the dry land and the, and the sea, man and woman, Adam and Eve. In fact, the climactic point of God's creation was the marriage of Adam and Eve together that would bring a family because it all starts there. 
And I know our world, we get it confused, and the courts are trying to figure it out, and we're trying to get all kinds of ideas, but, but that's the way God designed it. Jesus said from the beginning, God created them male and female, right? That's, that's the way that, that God instituted marriage, and you can't get family, right, just, just trying to figure out how to do it on your own if you don't get marriage right, right? And it's, it's that idea that, that the foundation, and, and godly marriage means we're going to stick together. Everybody say, say stick together, right? Doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. In fact, if you're married for a while, like say 10 days, Like there's the honeymoon, right? Honeymoon's like that, and the marriage is like this, okay? So a honeymoon, well, that's easy to get right. Marriage means that you're going to have to work through some hurdles and through some tough times, and you're going to you're gonna have, to, you're gonna have to get in a place where that you can be someone that can be a spouse. And here's where, here's where it starts when it comes to this is you've got to get in the presence of God, Husbands, wives, parents, you have got to spend time in God's presence. I want to tell you, God's presence will change so much in your life. Right? And, and that means this, you've got to develop closeness. Everybody say closeness. Closeness with him. As you, as a husband and wife gets closer to God, you know, if, if, I had a, if I had a big ladder up here, I'd show you, but as we get closer to God, we may be separate here, but as we get closer to him, we, we get closer to one another. I don't know. So many times I've heard people that's maybe struggling with their marriage, and, and I'll just ask the question. Like, I don't have some magic box. I can, hey, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the marriage Band-Aid. Put that on, and you're fixed, right? Take two of these in the morning, and your marriage will be good. There's not, like, I don't know what that is, but I do know this. I'll ask the question many times. So how often are you guys together? When's the last time you guys went on a date or was together? And when there's marriage problems, almost always they say, wow, I can't remember. They want to grab the husband by the collar and jerk him out in the hallway and say, what are you doing? But I don't. You know, I want to go flip the table on, on, but I'm all nice. I said, well, I think what you guys need to do is you need to go, go on a date, like go do something together. Maybe this is helping somebody right now. You, just need, you need to do something together. And sometimes they'll say, well, we don't have the time. I'm like, well, that's a wrong answer. If you don't have the time to work on your marriage, ain't nobody else going to give time to it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We don't have a time. Okay. If you don't get the marriage right, then your family is going to be off kilter. you gotta, you got to make time for your marriage. For people that you're not married yet, you're single, but you're going to get married, or maybe you've been in a marriage and it fell and you're trying to figure this out, just know this, that you got to make being together a priority. Now, you say, so you're saying every week we have to have a date night. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that you ought to have some time when you're together. Because the second thing I hear from people is, well, we don't have the money. I'm like, well, I didn't say you had to go to Ruth Chris. You can go over the park over here and walk around here and just hold hands, enjoy the sunlight, and get a little physical movement, and be together for 45 minutes or an hour. It doesn't have to be like, right? I mean, you, you can get an ice cream cone and split it if you need to. You don't have to spend a lot of money, but you need to get together. 
Here's what I'm saying. I know this, that if there's closeness in a marriage, well, then that's going to make people get along better. But, but I also know this, that your relationship with God is much more important than that. And if you don't spend time with him, you'll never have closeness in your marriage if you're not close to him. Because it takes a godly marriage to produce a godly family. Second is understanding this is that, and this is, this is word stuff, is that, that raising godly children, having a godly family is a parent's mandate and responsibility. It's not like you get kids and you're like, well, whatever. You, you got, you've got to steward and guide those children. And on this one, right, I, I, I said about marriage, ain't nobody else going to help your marriage. There's other people to help your kids. There's other voices that will speak into their life. There's other people that, 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 that will speak into their life and lead them in a direction that you never would have ever thought they would go. And that's why I'm saying this. As parents, you've got to own that responsibility and take it as a mandate. God has given you these gifts of children, and so now you need to steward them and guide them in the way that they should go. And, and I think so many times, uh, you know, because you've got to become comfortable with the word no. How many know that? Like, yes is easy. In fact, I like yes. When you're a grandparent, yes can be like, okay, yeah. You want that stuff that's going to rot your teeth out? You can have all you want. Yes. You want to go wild and throw pillows everywhere when, when you're with me? Go ahead and do it because we're going to have a blast. But if you're a parent, no, no, and no, right? You've got to become, and, and so many times because it's easier to say Yes. By the way, as a grandparent, I don't say yes to everything, but I'm just saying this, that, right, because you got to understand kids. And when your kid's two, it's a little different. I'm going to tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some hope with your children. When your kid's two, it's a little different because, let me help you, you're bigger, you're stronger, you're taller, you're smarter than your two-year-old. But your two-year-old, three-year-old, wherever it lands, up till then, they got everything they wanted the way they wanted it. Pretty much. They cry, you feed them. They cry, you change their diaper. They cry, you pick them up. They cry, you try to console them. You just are, right, you're there for them, and, and rightly show, so you should be. But there comes an age where you don't want to change the diapers anymore. Like, they should be able to handle that part on their own. Like, they don't get to eat every time they feel like it, right? That they, 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 they're growing, and then what happens when they're about two, two or three years old? They get this little bit of a defiant attitude because everything's been about them, and now you're saying no. Now you're saying, okay, it's not going to be everything the way you want it all the time. They're checking out of the out of the toddler uh, or the baby resort, and they're moving into toddlerhood, and now you're saying no, and that child is now being a little defiant sometimes because they're, they're, they're trying to make sure that you understand your role and you understand their role. They want to be in charge. And so I'm just saying this as a parent, well, there's that, there's that, that nuancing and leading and guiding because you're the parent and it's your responsibility to help them. But now, once your child gets, gets past two, and I'm not going to give you the exact age because I don't know if I know it, but you need to begin to pray when your child is two, when your child's born. 
right? Pray for your child's spouse when they're young. Pray they'll meet the right person. Pray that God will prepare the right person for them. That's a good prayer. But here's a prayer I want you to pray. Pray that your children will be Holy Spirit-filled and Holy Spirit-led. Because when you sit down with your child and you're doing a dis- there's a discipline issue and you say, what is the Holy Spirit saying? Right? Again, it didn't work with a two-year-old. When you get a child that's 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? What would the Holy Spirit, how's he leading you in this? And they say some crazy stuff, and then you say, well, that's not the Holy Spirit because here's what the Bible says about that. But I want to tell you, you get a child that starts being sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading them in their life, it'll change the direction that child's going. And the Holy Spirit helping your parenting is going to be much better than just your parenting. Because you can get a bunch of rules, you can give them all kinds of things that they can't, restrictions, things they can't and, and can do, but rules without relationship always leads to rebellion. And if you can engage in relationship with your child and allow the Holy Spirit develop a relationship with your child, I want to tell you that the do's and the don'ts will become insignificant because they'll be following his leadership. Rules without relationship always leads to rebellion. It's, it's, it's the idea also of discipline in a family. Right? You've got to view your role as disciple maker. You're not, you're not just there to make sure that your child learns how to tie your shoes. They, well, they need to do that. That's pretty elementary. You're not there to make sure they say please and thank you. You do need to teach them that. You need to teach them to look people in the eyes when they talk, look an adult in the eyes when they talk to them, be respectful and show honor. Those are all things that we need to teach children to do. We need to teach them that hey, there's, some, there's some places and things that you don't do and you don't go to because those things aren't healthy for you. But ultimately, Proverbs 22 and 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he won't depart from it. It's getting your, ch- your child in the word, right? Part of your, your role and responsibility as a parent, if you want to have a godly family, if you want to uh, overcome this frustration fault line, help them to get in God's word and to know God's word. And then lastly, praying as a family. And I know it's cliche, family prays together, stays together. Sometimes cliches are, come out of a place of truth. And it's an okay thing, Dad, to grab your wife and your children, or maybe you're a single parent, to grab your children, parent, and pull them around you and just say, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. Make, make it, a, make it a, a daily time where you pull them around and pray for them, spouses, and if you're, if, you're, if you're married and you haven't had children yet and you're desiring children, start praying together so that when the child arrives, you'll be ready to provide that atmosphere. Families who pray, pull and play together, stay together, and shine as bright lights in this dark and confused world. Second point is purposeful possibilities. Right? We, we, we understand that there's a parenting prototype in God's Word. Well, there's also some possibilities. And I, I look at, at Samuel's sons, and they made a wrong decision. They just did. If you, have, you think if you have Samuel as your dad, well, that's the model right there. I want to be like him. But they chose differently. His son's names, we, we see it in First Chronicles 6, verse 28. It says the sons of Samuel were Joel, the firstborn, and Abiah, the second. 
And then on down past there in verse 33, I kind of went here on purpose because I like what it says here. And these are the ones who ministered with their sons. You might highlight or underline that right there. These are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites were Heman, the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. Did you catch what happened right there? David is, is, is employing skilled musicians to play in the tabernacle. Never happened like this before. David has these musicians. They're going to they're gonna raise up praise and worship to God 24. It's a beautiful thing. And included among all those listed is Joel, the guy that didn't walk in Samuel's way, the guy that made the wrong decision, the guy that erred, the guy that chose rather to be like the world than like the example that his dad had provided. And I think it gives hope to every parent in here who has a son or daughter that's not serving God, that's like a prodigal but not returned yet. There's hope because the first decision isn't a final decision. You say, well, my child's made a lot of bad decisions. That's okay. It's not over. Your child still has an opportunity to make a right decision. And it looks like to me, for this firstborn of Samuel, he made a right decision. And picture this. Here he is with his son. And I don't know what they're playing. Maybe, there's some, maybe one's got the electric guitar and the other one's got a bass. I mean, I don't know. Whatever they got, one of those one of those instruments they would play then, right? And maybe it's horns. And they've got their and and can you imagine dad looking over at his son playing together in the house of God, knowing, because here's the way it is, knowing that Joel knew he made some wrong decisions. But those wrong decisions wasn't his last decision. At some point in time, he made a right decision. And look at this parenting. It impacted his son that now his son is in the presence of God with him as they, as they are ushering in people to experience God's manifest presence. Isn't that a powerful thing? And the last point this morning is powerful potentate. Nah, no, you didn't use that word yesterday. Unless you're the guy that asked me. I just was checking to see the spelling on this. So is this the right word? Did you, did you mean, is this, what, how do you say that? And I told him, he said, is that, is that a, I said, yeah, that's a word. That's in the KJV. It's authorized. Simply means king, right? This powerful king is going to be put into place. And he may not view Saul that way, but he was. He was. And if I look at some of the benefits of Saul being king, what are they? Well, here's one. Samuel had two sons that were judges, but that was ending. And it ended the day that the coronation day for Saul when he became king. All of their responsibility and wrongdoing had to come under submission and subjection to Saul as king. The judges no longer had the rule and ability to reign like they had done prior to not having a king. Now there's a king, new sheriff in town, and his name's Saul. And what that means for them is that all of the wrongdoing came 
to an end. And I would say this for every one of us and for your son, for your daughter. When they invite the King of Kings and Lord of Lords into their life, all of the stuff, the wrong decisions and the things they've got wrong and the things they're involved in, all of that can come to a close and to an end because there's someone else that's going to be in control of their life. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 in the Passion Translation. I think it helps us see this really well. It says, God's marvelous grace has manifested in person, bringing salvation for everyone. Hang there for a minute. That verse right there, you should just go put that up somewhere where you can see it every day. And every day you see it, just say, thank you, God, for your grace, your marvelous, amazing grace, and that it's brought salvation to my life and to my household. And goes on to say, this same grace, not a different grace, this same grace teaches us how to live each day as we turn our backs on ungodliness and indulgent lifestyles, and it equips us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. What's a good one there, too? For we continue to look forward to the joyful fulfillment of our hope in the dawning splendor of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, the Anointed One. He sacrificed himself for us that we might, uh, that he might purchase our freedom from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, passionate to do what is beautiful in his eyes. Now, grace is one of those things that sometimes I don't think we look at it as a king in our life. We're thankful for grace. It's like the woman who's caught in the act of adultery when they brought her out there and Jesus just offered this marvelous grace to her. She's guilty. She, the Bible says she's caught in the act. I mean, it's hard not to be guilty when you're caught in the act. And we could spend a lot of time on where the man is and all that stuff, but he, he extends grace to her. Now, grace, mercy is when you don't get what you, you deserve, right? Like mercy is, God have mercy on us and and we don't have to go to hell. Isn't that good? Yeah. But grace, well, grace is the added benefit. Not only do we not, in, in Christ, that we don't have to, the punishment that we deserve, we don't get that. But instead, we get heaven and eternity with God. That's grace. Right? I could never have done anything to earn that. We get abundant life on this planet. Like, just having mercy and sparing us from going to hell is like, praise God, that could be an eternity of praise right there. But no, he, he gives us grace. Grace is when you get benefits that are beyond just what mercy, mercy frees you, but grace extends life to you. Right? God's, some have said God's riches at Christ, at Christ's expense is marvelous grace. And we view grace that way. And thank God for that, that aspect of grace. But here in God's word, Titus well, it says the same grace does this. It's an empowerment, right? It's, it's not just the cover-up because all of us mess up. You, you, you were short with someone or you said something or you did something and, and all your best trying to follow God's word and your, your imperfect life, there's something that happened and you, you felt bad about it or what you repented of it, whatever, and, and you dealt with that and thank, thank him for his grace for that. But that's not only grace. The same grace teaches us how to live. That's good. This grace that's poured into our life, it teaches us how to live as we turn our backs on ungodliness and indulgent lifestyles and 
it equips us, right? It's the equipper to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present age. In other words, the Holy Spirit in your life is going to help you to live the godly life that you couldn't do on your own. That, that Holy Spirit grace in your life is charis that's poured out into your life that, that you're going to start to do something. You're going to feel the Holy Spirit check you because of the, that grace. Isn't that so good? And so right now, right now, some of you got some children that they need, they need to come to Jesus and you want them to you want to connect that dot so badly. And you've said things and you've stepped into things and you've tried to you've tried to hand to just just present and model a life of, of Christ likeness in front of them. Sometimes you've even maybe just went a little over what you needed to do, just in your your desire to see them come to Jesus. And by the way, I don't know how you can do too much, but just their response and how they received it. And some of you are heartbroken because your, child, your, your adult child or your teenager is not following in the right way that you know that they should be. And I'm just saying, first decision is not their final decision. And that once they come to the place to invite the king into their life, there's going to be so much change. And so I want to pray for you today. But then there's also families here that you're just struggling with. Maybe you just be honest, say, I'm trying to parent, but it's tough. And I feel like I've, I've looked here and there trying to find out what I should do, but I haven't went to God's word as much as I needed to, or maybe even in your marriage. You know, you tried to do all the things that you know how to do in your own ability and things that you think would work, but you really didn't consult with God about it. And so you're struggling with it. And I just know today is not an accident. I don't believe in coincidence that you're here on purpose because God wants to help you in that area. So if you'll stand with me for just a few.